So this morning, um, Mary is going to be talking to us from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. So I'm just going to read that for us before he comes up. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Jesus asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Well, good morning. It's uh, wonderful to be with you this morning. Thanks so much for the opportunity to come back here, uh, encouraging to worship with you and see what the Lord is doing here at Canterbury Gardens. And also a real privilege to open God's Word and preach from this passage that Beth has just read. It's a wonderful story, uh, a true story, a gospel story of the Lord Jesus. So let's just pray that God would be speaking to us as I speak this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, we believe that the Bible is your word. We thank you that you have spoken so clearly and so powerfully in the scriptures. And we pray that you would speak again through your word this morning. You know where we are each at, what we believe, what we struggle with, what we doubt. We pray that your word would speak into our hearts. We know that this is only possible if your Holy Spirit is at work amongst us. And so we pray for your spirit to be at work in me as I speak, in all of us as we hear. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, applying for a job can be scary, but I've learned in recent years that appointing people to jobs can be scary. Uh, If you have been involved in making staff appointments, you realise it can be a tricky business. You don't actually have a lot to go on. People send in an application, uh, you read a CV, you phone some referees, you maybe have an interview or two. People are putting forward their best foot and in a fairly short space of time, you've got to make a decision about whether this is the right person. You might use a recruitment agency to help, you might get some psychometric testing done, but it's it's a big step with someone you barely know. Now, what's fascinating in this story is that Jesus is recruiting some of his first disciples. And he's recruiting some disciples, that is, followers of himself, who will become apostles. Followers will eventually be sent out, which is what apostles means. And Jesus is really beginning to form a team of just 12 guys 
12 men who will follow him closely and witness pretty much everything for the next two to three years. They'll see his life, his miracles, his preaching, his ministry. Then they will witness his death and they will witness his resurrection. And then they will be sent out as apostles to pass on everything that they have seen. They'll have to tell the story. They'll preach the gospel. And as they do that, they will be laying the foundation for the church of all ages. It is an immense responsibility. How do you recruit for that? How do you recruit apostles? Well, Jesus' approach is pretty left field. Uh, He didn't advertise. He uh, didn't take any applications. He didn't interview anyone. He didn't use any agencies. There's no psychometric testing. Uh, He doesn't headhunt in the usual kind of places. You might think that he would go from Galilee up in the north, which is kind of country town stuff, down to Jerusalem amongst the religious leaders and the experts and the great teachers of Israel and find there some noble, worthy Uh, people who could undertake this mission, but none of that. He doesn't do any of the usual recruitment things because he's looking for something completely different. He's looking, as we'll see in this passage, for people who will be convinced of three things. If he can find people convinced of these three things, he'll be able to work with them. And it's fascinating for us because these three things we're going to look at this morning continue to be things that followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, need to be convinced of. None of us are going to be apostles. Uh, That was a unique role for eyewitnesses of Jesus who would pass on the gospel story. But whilst we're not being recruited as apostles, many of us are followers of Jesus. And if you are a follower of Jesus, these three things we're going to look at are essential. And if you are thinking about Christianity and, and looking at what it is all about to follow the Lord Jesus, these three things are critical to consider. So what are they? The first is this. We need to see the vast extent of Christ's authority. That's the first thing that's going to have to register deeply in our hearts. The vast extent of Christ's authority. This uh, recruitment exercise takes place on the shores of Lake Gennesaret, we're told in verse 1 of chapter 5. That's also known as the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Crowds of people have gathered around Jesus again. His preaching ministry is beginning. Word is spreading. He is a powerful and amazing teacher and preacher. Wouldn't it have been incredible to be on the shores of Galilee and heard him preach? As the crowds press in, Jesus needs a little bit more space. And so he gets into a fishing boat and pushes out just a little from the shore, sits down and speaks from the boat. It created kind of a natural natural 
uh, amphitheater with the, uh, the flat waters of the lake, the inlet, uh, the sloping shore. He could speak from the boat and it would echo and be heard clearly, potentially by thousands of people. Now, this, this boat that he's jumped into belongs to a guy called Simon, who is also called Peter. And sometimes this morning, I'll call him Simon. Sometimes I'll call Peter, and it's the same dude, okay? Now, Simon uh, and his brother and his colleagues are professional fishermen. They've been out fishing all night. This is the next morning. It had been a bad night fishing. They hadn't caught a thing. And so they've been cleaning their nets. Jesus has been preaching from his boat. And Simon, Simon Peter already knows that Jesus is no ordinary man. He's, he's followed him enough already to see that Jesus is exceptional. In fact, just in the previous section, we read that Jesus had miraculously healed Simon's mother-in-law. And Peter... There you go, Peter, Simon, had already seen Jesus casting out evil spirits. And he, of course, had heard him preaching, this amazing, powerful preaching. So Peter has respect for Jesus. But he also knows Jesus is not a fisherman. Uh, actually, Jesus, by trade, was a carpenter. And so when, after the preaching, Jesus says to Simon, let's uh, push the boat out and go fishing. You can almost sense Peter rolling his eyes. And go, oh no, like not fishing. Bad, pretty bad idea, Jesus. The type of fishing they were doing was trawling, which would be dragging a large net through the water behind these boats. Uh, in daylight, the net can be seen by the fish. Um, they swim the opposite direction. At night, the net can't be seen. So you fish at night. And Jesus is saying next morning after preaching, hey, let's go fishing. Simon Peter, is, you know, there's that sense. He's thinking to himself, this is not a good idea. But he respects Jesus. Verse 5, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. He has enough respect for Jesus not to decline him point blank, but to go along with this. Well, what follows blows Peter's mind away. There is a colossal catch of fish. It's so huge, it's almost a disaster. These guys are texting their mates saying, come on, bring out another boat, like... Uh, we need help. The, the nets are full. They take out a second boat. They fill both boats, and we're told both are nearly sinking. Like this is this is a humongous catch. These are not small little dinghies. These are probably uh, up to about eight meter long professional fishing boats. Two of them full and sinking. This is not just a good catch. This is an impossible catch. And right there, Simon Peter sees Jesus' authority in an entirely new way. 
somehow. Jesus is sovereign over the Lord, uh, sovereign over the fish of the sea, Lord of the fish of the sea. And, and somehow he is sovereign over Peter's own area of expertise. If he is to follow Jesus, he will not be able to confine Jesus to one area of life. He will have to follow him as Lord of all. And, and that is the essential thing for us to reckon with as well. If we are to follow Jesus, we will have to trust him in the whole of life. We'll have to submit to him whether it makes sense or not. Remember, for Simon Peter, this didn't seem to really make sense. But now he saw he had to submit to him whether it makes sense or not. He would have to surrender to him, to his lordship, and submit to Jesus his seemingly better ideas. Because Jesus would have to now be allowed to call every shot in his life. Now, I don't know about you. I don't have too much trouble trusting people and entrusting to people a certain area of my life. So I entrust to my accountant my tax return. That's fine. I don't trust my accountant with anything else. Uh, I'm prepared to go to my dentist and trust him to work on my teeth. I don't trust him with anything else. I entrust uh, jobs around the house to tradies, and I pretty much trust them, but only with that. But to follow Jesus is to trust him in everything. You're going to have to trust his view of finances. You're going to have to trust his view of marriage. You're going to have to trust him when it comes to your family life and when it comes to your work and when it comes to your children and when it comes to your retirement. You're going to have to trust him when you're sick and when it's not going well. You're going to have to trust him in problems. Trusting Jesus doesn't mean that he's now going to micromanage your life, of course. And it's not that he's always going to do miraculous catches of fish for fishermen. I mean, for Peter and co., if they continue to fish they would mostly have to continue just by the normal rules of fishing, but they would do so knowing that Jesus is sovereign over that. Sovereign over the fish. Sovereign over their lives, over their livelihood, over their families, over everything. And that's how it is for us. Jesus isn't necessarily going to bail you out of every problem before miracles left, right, and center. But as you do ordinary, everyday life, you and I have to reckon with the fact Jesus is Lord. And he's not just Lord of spiritual stuff, he's Lord of all. He's Lord of the fish of the sea. He's Lord over all creation. He's king. He's sovereign. And actually, that becomes a wonderful thing to know. 
a, a wonderful thing when you are going through trouble and problems and financial difficulties and marriage stuff and work stuff to know that Jesus is actually sovereign over that, that he's king, he's Lord, is a wonderful thing. I actually experienced that this week as I was preparing this message. I had a problem at work, and it absolutely floored me. Uh, Something came up that just blew me away, and I felt shaken, deeply shaken by it. And then the next day... I had to work on this message. And I had to prepare to say to you, trust Jesus with everything. (laughs) And I thought, wow, Murray, trust Jesus with everything at work, in this stuff going on. And I found it a huge encouragement, a huge sense of peace. Yes, Jesus, whose sovereign over the fish of the sea is sovereign over every area of life and we can trust him and actually this miracle was only a taster of what was to come after Jesus died and rose again he said to these disciples that he'd been gathering all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me so go and make disciples of all nations all authority. The risen Jesus has been appointed CEO of the universe, sovereign over all of creation. And so you cannot overstate the lordship and sovereignty and power of Jesus Christ. He knows what you don't know. He controls what you can't control. He does what you can't do. He sees what you don't see. He is Lord. Can I ask you that? A very simple but very important question. Do you trust him? you trust Jesus with everything? You trust his promises. You trust his love. Trust his control of all things. This, this miracle was given to increase our trust. Given to increase our confidence in Jesus. To know that he is sovereign over all things. And just as that was essential for those first recruits who would become apostles, so it's essential for us too as followers of Jesus today. We need to be convinced that he's Lord of all and we need to start trusting him in everything. Now that leads to the second thing. We need to see not only the vast extent of Christ's authority, in view of that, we need to feel the depth of our own inadequacy. We need to feel the depth of our own inadequacy. Peter's reaction to this miracle is fascinating. 
You know that uh, fishermen have the reputation of telling great stories. Uh, it's usually the, the story about the one that got away. And how can you ever question that story? Uh, but here is a story, not about the one that got away, but about, it seems, hundreds if not thousands of fish that just couldn't leap into the net fast enough. This would have made a brilliant story for years and years to come. You'd expect Peter's reaction to be, whoa, that is so awesome, Jesus. Like, how did you do that? You'd expect high fives all round, maybe like signing Jesus up as another partner in the fishing business. Hey, I've got a little contract here, Jesus. This, this could have been Peter's recruitment moment. But none of that. You'd expect, wow. And what you get is, Woe. Very similar to the response of Isaiah when Isaiah sees the glory and the majesty of God in his vision of God in the temple. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we're told in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah falls down and says, Woe is me, I am ruined. And you've got the same dynamic here. When Peter sees this, when he sees Jesus' power, when he sees his majesty, when he sees his lordship over the fish of the sea and over his own area of expertise, he says, go away, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. That's what he says. Look at it there in verse 8. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And he's changed his title for Jesus. Earlier he called him master. It was a term of respect, but it was, it was kind of like, yes, boss. And now he says, Lord, go away from me. When you see and sense the majesty and the holiness and the power of God it's almost an inevitable response to also see the smallness of yourself we see his holiness and all of a sudden we feel our sinfulness we see his power and we feel our weakness now that's a dynamic we're used to in other parts of life. I try to play a little bit of golf. It's pretty ordinary. But so long as I'm playing with other guys who play really ordinary golf, I can feel pretty good about my golf. Sometimes I beat really ordinary guys. And so that's fine. But occasionally I've had the misfortune of playing with someone who's exceptionally good. And if I play with a, a golfer who's just fantastic, I feel hopeless. I kind of want to hide all my shots. It's like, uh, don't look, I'm just going to try and drive this ball. Uh, all of a sudden, you feel really, really ordinary, and you have no problem with saying, like, yeah, yeah, I barely play any golf. Like, you just play your game down totally. Next to ordinary, a lot of us can feel pretty good. But when we come to know Jesus, we are not coming to know ordinary. We are meeting the one who is holy and majestic and powerful 
and beautiful and perfect beyond description. And next to perfect, we realize how imperfect we are. We start to realize that we've overrated ourselves and underrated God. We thought we were in control, and now we realize how wrong we were. We thought we had all the answers, and now we realize how pathetic many of our answers really were. We thought we were kind of okay, and now we realize we're not okay. We are actually sinful and frail and weak and vulnerable and very often pathetic. Have you felt that? Felt small, felt sinful, felt unclean? It's it's actually okay to feel that. I know the world constantly tells us to believe in ourselves and to think the world of ourselves, but it's actually okay to feel small and insignificant. It's even psychologically okay. I came across this fascinating study uh, done by psychologists on the psychology of awe. They did this uh, brilliant experiment where they showed a group of people awe-inspiring videos of vast mountains, wonderful videos of planet Earth. And, uh, and it, w- it was all very, you know, those kind of videos, just magnificent scenery. And then they asked the subjects of this experience to, to experiment to play a game for money. The people who had just seen awe-inspiring footage of planet Earth compared to people who had just watched comedy clips played much more fair. They described themselves as actually feeling insignificant and small, and then the experiment went to show that they were more likely to be generous. It increased their ethical decision-making. They evidenced more pro-social values. They had a decreased sense of entitlement and an enhanced concern for other people. The conclusion of the study was that a feeling of being small and insignificant can enhance your relationships with others. Fascinating. But Peter here hasn't just seen a video of awesome mountains and oceans. He has been in a boat with the creator of mountains and oceans. He has sat there alongside God in the flesh. And it was actually an essential part of Jesus' recruitment process. This was not a job interview where Peter had to sell himself. This was an encounter with Jesus where he had no choice but to stand in awe of him. Disciples don't think they are amazing. They think he 
is amazing. And actually, Peter's sinfulness that he feels so acutely now, his unworthiness and his adequacy would be dealt with by Jesus. Jesus was beginning a journey that would take him to the cross. And there on the cross, he would deal with Peter's sin and with our sin. Peter says, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. But Jesus had come for sinful men and sinful women and sinful kids. Jesus had come that he would eventually take those sins, take the, the responsibility for them on himself and take the punishment for them in order to set us free from that sinfulness. And so actually as we acknowledge that we're sinful, and as we confess our inadequacy and our unworthiness and our stuff-ups and the mess of our lives, as we do that, Jesus doesn't dismiss us. He recruits us. And if you sit here this morning and you feel deeply conscious of sinfulness or weakness or failure or guilt or shame, if you sit here and think, I, I don't think Jesus could do anything with me, you're exactly the kind of person Jesus has always worked with. You're actually the only kind of person Jesus can work with. We're all sinners. Next to divinity, we're all small, very, very small. And Jesus had come to recruit people like that who have a deep sense of their own unworthiness. I just want to remind you clearly this morning, Jesus is not looking for perfect. He's looking for humble, grace-dependent people. And so Jesus now, as we've been unfolding this story, has shown Peter that he has his fishing business covered and shown him that he has his sin covered. And finally, he's going to show him that he has his job covered, his new job covered. The, the third thing we need to be convinced of, the third thing Simon Peter had to be convinced of, the third thing all of us need to be convinced of, is we need to be sure of the ultimate success of Jesus' mission. We need to be sure of the ultimate success of his mission. Actually, this vast catch of fish is used by Jesus now as a metaphor for the vast mission that he was embarking on in this world. He is now recruiting Peter for the job. And what is the new job? He says, from now on, you will not be a fisher of fish. You will be a fisher of people. Uh, he says that to him, Verse 10, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. That's a, it's an amazing phrase. Actually, the, the word there they uses literally means catch alive. You'll be catching people alive. Uh, this is not going to be uh, catching and eating, as we do with fish. It's not um, kill and sell. It is catch alive because what Jesus wants to do is he wants to to catch up other people like Peter, 
other small, insignificant, sinful, struggling, ordinary people, catch them up and set them free. Set them free of their sins, set them free to live for him, live in relationship with him, live in a whole new way. The apostles, these these initial 12 that Jesus gathered, would go on to preach the message of Jesus, of who he is. They'd follow him around for the next two to three years. They would see his miracles. They'd hear his preaching. They'd see his power. They'd witness his grace and his love and his gentleness. And they would pass on that message. They would preach it. These guys were plain, ordinary, unschooled blokes. Fishermen. They're they're tradies. And he would take these tradies and he'd give them a message. And they'd speak that message. And there would be a colossal catch. Peter, this guy, Simon Peter, stood up on the day of Pentecost. And on that day, the day in which the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, he preached. And he preached about Jesus. He preached about the guy that he'd been following around for the last two to three years. And what happened? We're told 3,000 people believed. That is a colossal catch. The the nets were breaking. By the end of the New Testament, just like 50 years later, 40, 50 years after this, churches have been established throughout the Roman Empire. In Israel, in Syria, modern, you know, these are now, if I give them the, the modern day names, in Syria, in Turkey, in Greece, in Rome, there are churches established throughout the Roman Empire. It was phenomenal. These guys, ordinary, basic guys, were turning the world upside down with their message. Vast numbers of people being saved. And today, 2,000 years later, what began with a bunch of people on the lake of Gennesaret, on the Sea of Galilee, has become the world's largest religion. We are a little tiny subset here this morning of millions and millions of people around the world, billions of people around the world who will worship Jesus Christ this morning. The the catch has been colossal. There are vast numbers of people being saved in China. I'm so excited to have worked with a a mission work in India where in a, a group of rural villages in some of the western states of India where there's open persecution of Christians and the, the evangelists there, a team of 60 evangelists working in these villages, they have next to no training and next to no resources and local persecution. They're seeing, just in that little area, a 1,000 people saved every year. And for the last 10 years, that's been consistent. Every year, it's been another 1,000. I get monthly updates, and, and the updates say, uh, another 120 saved this month, or 60 this month. The catch is phenomenal. Christ is Lord of the catch. And this first miracle was given to assure these recruits that he was able to do immeasurably more than all they would ask or imagine. And he still can. Just as he could bring scores of fish into the nets in broad daylight, 
so he can bring people into his kingdom even in the hard soil of secular Australia. He can save people through student ministry on campus, and he does. He can save kids at beach missions. He can save people that you share your faith with at work or your neighbours. He can save people you bring along to church. He can save people through the preaching of his word as, is, as the gospel is proclaimed. You know, people hear that and believe and are saved. They're, they're caught alive for the kingdom of heaven. And like those first recruits, we realize we are no fools if we throw everything at this. We are no fools if we throw everything at this. Look, look at the response of these people. Again, verse 9, we're told, uh, he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish. And he's alongside James and John, who will become two more of the apostles. And then verse 11, it says, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. <laughs> left everything. Left the fishing tackle. Left the boats. Left the colossal catch of fish. <laughs> that must have been hard. Left hundreds if not thousands of good fish. They left everything and followed Jesus. Now, as I said, we're not apostles. We're not being recruited for the same thing as them. And you won't necessarily have to leave everything, though you might. You won't necessarily have to leave home, though you might. Jesus does that to people, doesn't he? He sends some of us away to go to places we'd never thought of to serve him. You won't necessarily have to give up your business like Simon Peter did, but you never know, you might. Or you might have to give up a, a juicy whack of the income that you're making your business because your whole value set has changed now that you follow Jesus. But we will be no fools if we give up everything to follow the Lord of the catch. That's how he recruited these first followers and these initial apostles. He wasn't after the best and the brightest, and the smartest and the handsome and the most popular. He was after a few men who would see the vast extent of his authority, who would actually feel the depth of their inadequacy and who would be sure of the success of his mission. He wanted those three things because then they would follow him absolutely dependent, leaning on him, trusting him, confident in him, excited to be with him and to be part of his mission in this world. Well, 
it could be that this morning Jesus is recruiting some more followers of Christ. If any of you are not yet following the Lord Jesus, here are reasons to do so. He's sovereign, he's glorious, he's powerful, he's God. And he doesn't turn sinners away. He invites us in all our weakness and unworthiness and vulnerability to come to him. And he uses us. He's not just after the best and the brightest, but he can take anyone. He can take the best and the brightest. And he can take the most ordinary. And he will completely change our life and give a whole new sense of purpose and mission. And so if you've never followed Jesus before, can I encourage you to think about making this morning the day you started to follow Jesus. And you can just do that very simply by acknowledging before him, just talking to him in your own head quietly now, telling him that you understand that he is Lord and you will follow him. And if you do that it'd be so good to talk to someone else afterwards talk to Shabu talk to one of the elders come and talk to me there's so many people here who would love to help you know more about what it means to follow Jesus and maybe maybe some of you who are followers of Jesus will bring in more of the catch this week maybe the Lord will open up a, a conversation for you this week where you have opportunity to talk about Jesus about who he is and what he's doing in this world. And maybe the Lord is going to use this church to bring in vast numbers of people. Wouldn't that be wonderful if this continues to be a church where people discover who Jesus is and begin to follow him? Who knows? That may well happen. We don't have to know. we we are not Lord of the catch, <laughs> but he is. What we know for sure, what we know for sure, is that because of what happened on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Gennesaret, 2,000 years ago, we can have absolute confidence in Jesus. He is Lord of the catch. He's God. He's full of grace, grace to unworthy people. And he is saving many for eternal life. So have confidence, not in yourself, but in the Lord of the catch. Shall we pray? We thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have shown us of yourself in this passage this morning. We thank you that you are Lord of the catch. We thank you that you are mighty God, sovereign over every part of our lives. We thank you that you're gracious to small, unworthy people. And we thank you that you are doing wonderful things in this world, even today. So help us to be your followers to follow you, confidence in who you are and what you are doing. And may this be for the glory of your great name. Amen.